So I don't know about for you, but for me as a dad, I love to look through pictures. Right, you find those times, I'll pull out my phone and just scroll through pictures of my kids when they were little. Um, And as we get into the holiday season over the next couple months, there'll be a time that you'll likely be with family. And frequently, if your family is anything like ours, someone over the course of that time, whether it be out of boredom or some other reason, will grab a photo album from one of the grandparents' house, right? And just begin to look through those pictures um, and be reminded who they were and who they are, be reminded of stories of people who are no longer with us. But there's all these things that happen when we look at pictures. I brought a couple of my own for you to look at. Who I was, right? Those first two, that was my high point. I've gone down from there, okay? But these pictures, you begin to see who you were and who you are and the goofy things you do like wearing a, a jumpsuit in about every color possible and just throw them all together, right? These, these pictures that we have of our lives. And that image that tells us who we were and who we are. And sometimes in our lives we don't like to look back because there's broken moments that we see that we don't want to, we don't want to see anymore. But the passage we're going to look at this morning, it's a familiar passage, Look, every moment we look at in these old pictures, you lived it, so you know it. You know it better than anybody else. What the picture does is it jogs your memory and pulls back to light things that may have been hidden for a while, things that you may have set aside. And the passage we're going to look at today in Ephesians chapter 2 takes something that every one of us who know Christ are familiar with, but it reorients us to who we were so that we can more rightly be who we are called to be and live the life that God's called us to. So if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 1. While you're flipping there, I just want to give you a little bit of background from the earlier part of Ephesians 1. Right before this, as Paul has been writing to the people in the Ephesian church, they're believers, they know Christ, he has just pointed out who Jesus is. And that Christ has been elevated, Christ has been given dominion over everything, that the authority and power of Jesus Christ is what he talks about at the end of chapter 1. And then we get to chapter 2, which is where we start. It says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So we're going to start with a really upbeat note, right, on who we were. What's it say at the beginning? And you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. Note at the beginning it says, and you. He's talking to every person who would have been reading this letter This is not the point where you lean over and elbow somebody else and say, hey, I think this is for you. This is a you that includes every single one of us. That as he wrote this to the Ephesian church, it meant every one of them. And as we see throughout the rest of scripture, it means every one of us. This is something we all wear. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We have a concept of dead, don't we? We understand what, what dead means physically. On my way in, I drove past a dead possum, and, and for a split second, I thought, I wonder what it would be like to pick that up and carry it out there and show a dead possum. So we get the image of dead. But we physically know dead, right? We get physical death. 
More often than not, I think we live in the place spiritually of believing we were mostly dead and not fully dead. You ever see that movie, The Princess Bride, and they talk about mostly dead? Right? A buddy of mine, when he was in college, he went camping, and some friends of his were with him, and one of his friends got the bright idea. He saw a dead water moccasin on the ground. So he thought, I'll throw the dead moccasin at my buddy. It hit him in the chest and hit the ground. He looks at his buddy and says, what was that for? And the guy goes, it's dead. Only the thing starts moving and slithering off. Something was clearly wrong with it, but it wasn't fully dead. In that moment, you and I know the difference between mostly dead and dead. Right? And spiritually speaking, if we believe there's some element of our lives that is partially alive instead of fully dead, we'll see as the passage goes along that we have room for arrogance to somehow believe that maybe I was mostly gone, but there was that little piece of me that was just good enough for God to grab a hold of me. That makes me different than anybody else and other people. The reality of what this passage says and what Paul says, it says, no, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There was no mostly dead. There was completely and fully dead. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And then verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Isn't it interesting? Paul just talked about we're dead. And then he talks about what we walked in and what we lived in. We're spiritually dead, but somehow, physically, we walk in this sin nature, right? This, this area of our lives that pushes us to everything contrary to who God is. See, the sin nature is, is the core of who we are. It's everything. It's all encompassing. It's not a matter of that we commit sins, so therefore we are a sinner, we are a sinner at our very core, so therefore we commit sin. Right? What Paul is pointing out, it's not just something that we've occasionally done. It is the very blood that runs through our veins is moving toward our own nature, toward our own desire, towards things that are contrary to God. And it culminates at the end of verse 3, talking about we indulge the desire of our flesh and of the mind. So our heart, our mind are all fully corrupted. So as we walk in these things, we take this picture looking back and say, everything about my emotions, my mind, the way that I think is fully corrupted by the sin that it was my nature. And then he says, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So what it says, what, what Paul is telling us is who we were when we flip back in the photo album of our lives spiritually, we were dead people deserving the wrath of God deserving the judgment for our rebellion against him. It's a pretty picture, isn't it? Right? Don't we, get, we don't get excited about that moment, that reality of who I was, was a child of wrath in a place that deserved judgment from God. And why does that matter? Well, as we go, we'll point out how that matters, what that means, how it affects where we are and who we are. But the simple piece is understanding that we were the same as everybody else. There's not anything about us that's any different. Spiritually speaking, every one of us is in the, was in the exact same boat. 
And there's no way for us to get out of it on our own. And then verse 4. But God. A phrase that you'll see a couple of places in Scripture that is the most, one of the most important pieces of this. But God, we'll come back, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, here's the reality. While we were dead in our sin, while we were dead and could not reach out to God, but God, because of his character, because of his nature, because of his work, created a way. There's no way in and of ourselves. Look at what it says about who God is. But God, being rich in mercy. You know what mercy is? See, these verses right here have a few words that we tend to think of as church words. We understand them in context a little bit, but getting the full picture of them is vitally important. Mercy. Mercy is simply not being given what we deserve. You ever had a moment in your life when you weren't given what you deserve? This is God saying, you deserve judgment, but I so love you that I don't want you to experience that. I want you to know something different, so I'm going to provide a way so that you don't have to experience that judgment. So here's, here's the picture of it. I was, read an article a couple weeks ago about a story that came out of Iran. And this story happened about four years ago. And the, the Iranian justice system is built in such a way that if someone commits murder, um, that person is executed. And at their execution, the family of the person that they have murdered has the option immediately before the execution to pardon their execution if they'd like to. You can imagine that didn't happen very often. But four years ago, there was a, a, a mother and a father that had lost their 18-year-old son. And at the moments before the execution, the mom and dad walked up to the murderer of their son, removed the instruments of execution, and pardoned him. Now, the justice system there said that he deserved death. Those parents the most grievously offended, said we're going to give him what he does not deserve and that is life. That's mercy, being given what we don't deserve. So God, rich in mercy, wanting to give us what we don't deserve because of his great love for us. He acted in mercy because of his love, right? He sent his son out of love. The, the, famous, the popular verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Right? His love was so extended to us that he said, not only do I want to, for you not to experience the judgment that is there, I'm going to put my son in the place for him to experience so you don't have to. Can you ever imagine being grievously hurt by someone and then putting your son or daughter in their place because you love them so much so they do not have to endure what they rightly deserve. So here's the picture of what Scripture gives us. We're not simply helpless. 
Right? We, we are helpless, but we, that conjures up images of like a little puppy that's just been lost. You go, oh, that little puppy needs help. Or a child that, that simply has been abandoned and needs someone to come alongside. They're not hostile. The reality is what Scripture teaches us in our sin. We are hostile toward God. Not simply helpless. Saying, we don't need your help. We want to be about ourselves. And in that hostility, God said, I love you enough to send my son for you so that you don't have to experience the judgment that you deserve. Look how it continues. By grace you've been saved at the end of verse 5 and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See that picture of grace? You know what grace is? Grace is being given what we don't deserve. So if mercy is not being given what we deserve, grace is being given what we don't deserve. So it could simply have been that God sent his son to die for us so that we don't have to experience the judgment and he could have just sent us on our way and said, hey, I've done more than enough for you. But in grace, he said, I love you too much to simply just send you on your way. What he says, what it says he did, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. You know what he's saying? Not only am I removing from you the mantle of judgment and putting it on my son, I am giving you the place with my son in my presence. I'm giving you the right to be my children. And not only that, but in the ages to come, what he's started now and what he's going to continue to do for all of eternity is pour out the riches of that grace that is unsurpassed on us who are his children. Catch that? Because notice he uses the word seated and raised. Those are past tense words. Those, those are used in such an extent that it, it's as if we are already seated in the presence of God through Jesus Christ. Our security, our place is so secure, it's already happened. So for you and I as believers in Christ, we have been moved from death, children of wrath, made alive, as this verse says, children of God, seated before the Lord with Christ. So that he can just pour out the surpassing riches of his grace on us for ages to come. Guess how we got there? But God. Not but me. Notice it doesn't say, but Kurt. It says, but God in his character, in his nature, he took me in my deadness and moved me to life because of his mercy, because of his grace, because of his love. Famous verses we know, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see how many times in this passage Paul re-pulls back out that it has nothing to do with our ability to earn the favor of God? Right? In verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. He's reminding the readers, you didn't do this, God did. And through faith, 
right? Faith is simply resting in the reality, putting all that I am to rest in the reality that Christ is who he says he is. He died, he rose again, he paid my penalty, and if I would believe with all that I have of who he is, I'll be right with God. See this idea of resting? We went on a walk this weekend and our 11-month-old was in the stroller. Normally, she just kind of sits back, chills, and kind of kicks one leg, just kind of relaxed. For some reason on the hills this week, she decided to grip the side of the stroller and lean forward with this look of terror. Like she's bouncing around, just not sure. It's not resting. Resting is this trusting in who Christ is and what he's done for each and every one of us. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not as a result of works. Again, verse 9, he says it again. If we didn't get it, that it's not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. He says again, not by works. So what? So that no one may boast. Why is it important to know who we were when we're talking about who we are? Because the tendency is to believe that we were mostly dead and to find a reason to boast. Find a reason to say, somehow I did something. Somehow there was a little piece of me that was able to to receive God in a way that other people don't receive. See, we need this reminder of who we were so that we can rightly move forward in who we are because otherwise we will start to believe there was something in it about us. So we have to be reminded of this picture to keep our humility. That it is the character and nature of God, not the character and nature of me. And why would Paul bring this out again and again to believers, people who know Christ, who've moved from death to life? Why would he continue to articulate it? Because we quickly forget. We quickly try to live our lives in our own strength and and don't remember the snapshots of who we were in light of who we are. So think about it. Um, If you're married, when you go to a wedding, you know what that wedding does? It gives us a snapshot, a reminder of where we came from, right? As Michelle and I go to a wedding, we watch these young couples get married, and we we see them make vows, and and we kind of laugh a little sometimes at the vows they make, going, oh, if you only knew what you're vowing to, right? Let's make make biblical vows and write vows, Um, but at times some of them are a little crazy, and you go, but in this moment, the joy of watching two people seek to pursue Christ in the relationship of marriage. You know what it does? It reminds us of that moment. It reminds us of when we got married and what it was like to be married in that moment. And it's a reminder of what we vowed before the Lord. It was a reminder of who we were as young kids getting married and the things that God has done in our lives to this point. So it's a reminder of who we were, but you know what it also is? It's a beautiful reminder of where God has taken us. Because in those moments, we can look back on the 14 plus years and go, we are incredibly thankful for reminders of where the Lord started our marriage. But we are even more thankful of where the Lord has brought it this many years later. Because as much emotion as is there, there's an even greater depth of what there is 14 years later and 40 years later. 50 years later, 
right? The reminder of who we were reminds us of where we started from and that God has been doing a work. And the wedding day is the point that we've trusted Christ and there's growth beyond that. But notice what he says, how he ends in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Interesting. Paul points out who we were. Then he points out who we are. And says in light of who we were and who we are, we now have tasks created for us to do. For we are his workmanship. You know what happens when you are confident in the character of God? You're confident that you can trust him with anything. When you see that his mercy was poured out on us in a way that we did not deserve it, but he lavished it upon us. When we see that his grace, that he once has called us children of God and co-heirs with Christ has been settled on our lives. When we understand the love that he gave to, to sacrifice his son so that we could be in right relationship with him. All of those things begin to lead to a point where we go, I can trust him that he created me intentionally and with a purpose. So you can meditate on Psalm 139 that points out that God knit you together intentionally for purpose. So Moses, whenever God was calling him out and telling him, I want you to go to Pharaoh and speak on my behalf so that the the Israelites will be released from Egypt. Well, in Exodus 4, one of Moses' excuses was Moses said, Lord, I'm not eloquent of speech, You want me to go talk to Pharaoh? Remember, the way I was made, the way you made me, in effect, was I can't speak well. So you better go find someone else. And you know the Lord's response? He says, did I not make your mouth the way that it is? Did I not make the person who is deaf or the person who is blind? Did I not create every person intentionally? You trust me. And allow me to do the work I want to do in your life because I've created you intentionally. See, when we are able to rest in God's intentionality in our lives, we can go about the work he's called us to go about. For 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 believers, what is that work? That primary work, as Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 1, is to proclaim Christ. It's to make disciples. It's to share with other people who God is. And so literally what we get to do is open the photo album of God. You know that's really what this is? This is the photo album of the character and nature of God. Every story is revealing the character of God. It's revealing his nature. It's revealing how he works, how he operates. And so we get the privilege of opening to others. This is who God is. This is the story of where I have been. And this is the story of where he's taken me. And guess what? He wants the same for you. And we're confident who he's made us to be. We can then share in humility with other people. See, because do you know in the spiritual photo album of your life and my life, there's one who's been in every single picture But you know the difference? That one has never changed. Right? God was there 
the moment you were born. God was there before the moment you were born. God was in the garden and created in, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And God was, will be there in Revelation 22 when all things end and we move into eternity. He has never changed. So that as you and I move from death to life, we know the character and nature of God that is seen here in these passages will not change. We can have great security in that. So we then get to tell his story in a way that from a perspective of someone who humbly knows I did nothing to earn it is in a place of great gratitude because of the extent of God's character and nature. See, we talk about who we are and who we were. This is primarily about who God is and what he's done. And we simply get to rest in that reality. Created for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So we are confident. Guess what happens? We then can be a church that is united. Because we all in humility know who we were and we all in confidence know who God's made us to be. We can then walk in confession and repentance. Because when, when I know who God has, has given for me to be, I, my sin no longer carries the same power that it once did. I no longer have to stay in the shame of my brokenness. I can draw it into light because God's mercy is so great. His grace is so great. His love is so great that he wants to move me to a place where that sin no longer has power over my life and I'm not giving it power. See, moving from death to life is not moving from imperfect to perfect. Moving from death to life is moving from unforgiven to forgiven. And we still, in our imperfection as we have been forgiven by God through Christ, have to daily be surrendering to him to allow him to mold and shape our lives. So then we can be about confession and repentance. So then we have the ability to be aware of the deception of the enemy through the spirit as he seeks to move us from what God would call us to do. See, all the things that we have talked about as a church over the last several months, we're, all, we're capable of every one of those because of this reality. Who we were, the character of God, and who we are. See, so then when you face those moments of uncertainty, guess what we get to utter? But God. You get to that place of going, my relationship, my marriage is in shambles and I've got nothing left and the only thing I've done in my marriage is create ashes out of it. It is destroyed and it's my fault and I don't see any way out of it. You know the response? But God. When, when we're wrestling with anger and bitterness and we don't know what to do and someone has wronged us and we just, it just is eating at us internally and we go, Lord, I have no way of getting past that because they owe me. They have taken something so precious from me. You know the answer? But God, as he has lavished his mercy upon us, 
we in turn get to give mercy to others. See that reality of when in Matthew 18 as Jesus told a story about a servant who owed millions, comparatively speaking, it would be like owing millions. And he came before the master and, and begged for mercy. The master was gonna sell off his family, sell off everything he owned to try to repay that debt. And as a servant just before him begged for mercy, that master said, I'll grant you mercy. And he forgave the debt. That servant then went out, found another servant who owed him a day's wage. A day's wage. And said, hey, you owe me. That second servant said, you know what? I don't have it. I beg for mercy. The first one who had been given great mercy has the second one thrown into jail until he can repay the one day's worth of wage. Other servants see this picture and go, that is not the way it should be. This guy receives such great mercy. How come he can't extend a little bit of mercy? And the master came back and threw the first servant into jail. Had him tortured until he could repay everything, which would never happen. In the same way, when we are confident in the mercy that God has bestowed upon us, we recognize our deadness and our need for complete mercy, the way that God and his character poured that out on us, and that we are secured by his nature. Then, when we are in our bitterness and anger, we recognize, but God, his mercy, I can extend mercy. No matter what we face, there is a moment that we have the opportunity to look back and to see the character and nature of God and have confidence, not in what we can do, not in who we are, but in who he is and what he does. But God, whatever we face, whatever we face as a family, whatever we face as a church, whatever we face as individuals, we get to see that reality. As we spend time looking back, there ought to be a humility that comes out. As we spend time looking at where we are, there ought to be a gratitude that is unparalleled and unmatched. See, the easy nature, the farther away we get from the moment that we were in our old nature when we were condemned as children of wrath, the easier it is to forget. And we need the reminders so that we don't live for ourselves, but we live for the one who's created good works in advance for each of us to do. So that we will tell his story because his story, as evidenced by his photo book, is the greatest story ever told and leads us to the greatest life we could ever live and the greatest joy we could ever know. And how can we not share that with other people as forgiven, loved, receivers of mercy and bearers of grace because of God's character?